Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton has its first case of COVID-19 that doesn't link to travel. What does that mean? Well, Allison Thompson joins us to chat about that and the state of emergency. How is progress going for those returning from Canada? Well, my daughter just returned from Jamaica and is now in self-isolation as a precaution. She joins me to discuss her experience coming across the border at Pearson last night. And the federal government announced a major economic package that's going to help stimulate the economy. They hope. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, locally here, Hamilton now has its first case that does not have a link to travel. Uh, It was community spread is the phrase that we're using right now. What does that mean and what kind of strategies should we as a community be employing going forward on that? Well, let's uh, ask our next guest. Allison Thompson is an associate professor of pharmaceutical sciences, the professor of public health services, and a professor of public health sciences at the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time and a busy, busy time. I'm glad you could join us today. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, we're starting to see uh, exactly what the experts have been telling us about, that uh, the, these are the benchmarks that we're going to find. And when, uh, obviously, a lot of the, uh, the initial cases that we had here in Canada were linked to travel. But when we have a community spread uh, situation uh, and, and a confirmation, what does that mean? So what that means is that it is now uh, the virus is transmitted from person to person in the community, and it makes it a lot harder to track individuals who are ill uh, and don't know it yet. <laughs> so what we're going to see is what happened in Italy and China with probably we're, we're about to see a, a big explosion in the numbers of people who are contracting the virus. So essentially, this is uh, this is not somebody who flew in here from another part of the world and brought that virus with us. This is uh, somebody who got this right now, got it from somebody here. Exactly. So what we're going to see is that this is going to just continue to uh, to transfer from person to person, and it doesn't require someone coming in from the outside anymore. So measures that we're taking at airports at this point in time are now probably um, pretty ineffective in terms of trying to attract people coming in because it's already here. I.e. closing uh, borders and things of this nature. That's, as one yeah. person indicated, that seems to be uh, letting closing the barn door after the horse ran away. Exactly. So I, I think, you know, we are better off shifting our resources to to contact tracing in the community and, and to trying to keep people at home and not going outside unless it's absolutely necessary. You use the analogy of, of what we saw in Italy and the tragic, of course, numbers that we have seen in Italy right now. Uh, and the, and the, the, the point that seemed to be the turning point there was this identification of a, a, a community uh, uh, spread to this. Should we be yes. afraid? Should we be concerned about this? Yep, this is definitely a turning point uh, for Canada where we're going to see sustained community transmission of the virus. And I think it it just uh, underscores the importance of the social distancing measures that are being put into place across the country. So let's let's go back over those once again, because uh, it seems to me as if this is becoming more and more uh, the, the one tool that we as a, as a community and individually, I guess, can use in situations like this. I mean, you, you, there's a sense of frustrations, I guess, oftentimes, Professor, when you see these numbers and you see the way this is multiplying. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, the reassurance, I guess, is, is that the, uh, the folks in, in medical health and the people that are monitoring this are saying, look, it, if you follow what we're doing, uh, you know, we're not going to eliminate the virus, but we can certainly mitigate the growth of it. Exactly. And actually, 
public health cannot do this without everybody's help. And so we all have the power to stop this virus in its tracks, but that means sort of stopping ourselves in our tracks. So um, it feels strange to ask people to stay home and do nothing, but that is actually something that is, is, you're actually doing something by not doing something. So don't go to work. Don't go on transport, uh, public transit, if you can help it, you know, limit your contact with people because that's the only way this virus is going to survive, survive is if it can jump from person to person. So the fewer people you're in touch with, the better uh, chance we have of controlling it. The numbers are going to spike, though. And, and when, you know, we hear these daily briefings, of course, from from the officials in Ottawa, and, and they say that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, it, this seems to be the turning point now that we're looking at community spread. And we don't know exactly how many people, for instance, this individual that was identified here in the Hamilton area, how many people mm-hmm. they may have been in contact with and, and how many people those people were in contact with, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, this, this could start spiraling upward pretty quickly. It, it absolutely could. And we're pretty sure now that it's uh, possible to spread the virus before you are experiencing symptoms. So just because you think that you're okay um, and you're feeling okay doesn't mean that you aren't possibly already shedding virus and spreading it to other people. So while it may seem like an overreaction to ask people who who feel well and have very little chance of having come into contact with someone who might have had it, it's actually a prudent thing to ask people to seriously curtail their interactions with other people. When we look at the history of what's gone on with China, and obviously that's we know to be the origin of this, of this virus in any way, Professor, uh, and we've seen a, a steady decline, and ac- actually a pretty rapid decline in the last uh, two or three weeks of new cases there. But uh, they were, as some people would suggest, rather draconian in the implementation of, of, of their isolation programs. They they ordered it. I mean, they didn't say, we suggest that restaurants close or that you not go out. Uh, there were, we've heard stories that people were actually fined and arrested in some cases if they were on the street when they weren't supposed to be. I don't think we're yeah. ever going to get to that point in this democracy, but it seems as if uh, I hate to pull an old phrase out of here, but drastic times do require drastic measures. Absolutely. And that doesn't mean that we have to uh, take away people's civil liberties to do that. You know, I think can- Canadians are, are pretty smart people and they understand the need to do this. And we know from our experience with SARS that most people are more than happy to comply these kinds of measures uh, around quarantine and social isolation. And so, I'm hopeful that people will just use their common sense and think about their neighbors and their loved ones and and stay home. And we do have the power to mandate that. That's why we're seeing some of these emergency measures being put into place. But, you know, one hopes that that wouldn't be necessary because people understand the need to comply with these measures. I don't want to get too deep into the anthropology here, but this is, I guess, a little uncomfortable for an awful lot of us because it'd be, by nature, humans are, are kind of social animals, aren't we? we? We love to live in community. We love to interact with each other. And basically, we're told, you can't do that now. Yeah, I mean, we can still do that. We we have a wonderful array of technology that allows us to stay in touch with people if we want to. I'm talking to you on the phone right now. We can do video chats. We can... Um, I don't know, send smoke signals, passenger pigeons. We've got, we've got lots of options for staying in touch, and we just need to be creative and see this as a, as a challenge, um, but make a point of staying in touch with people we know are isolated at this point in time because isolation can quickly turn to loneliness, and, and we, don't, we don't want that, and it's not necessary in this day and age. So 
make sure you're checking in on your friends and your and your loved ones. Do it once a day. Just get into the habit, and uh, it's reassuring for everybody. Well, this little computer we all seem to carry around these days is, is obviously the communication tool that most of us use. And as you said, with all the social media tools, uh, and we can debate the efficacy of those and whether or not they're the, the ethics of them, too, I suppose. But right now, they're an essential tool, whether it's going to be Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, whatever Absolutely. the case might be, or just plain email uh, to go back yeah. and forth like that. that. You know, when we talk about isolation, uh, that just simply means we don't want physical contact as much as possible to try to avoid that. But I mean, all the other means of communication are, are there for us. Exactly. We're actually really lucky because we've got all this technology at our disposal, and most people have a phone these days um, that is easily accessible. So, And you're seeing a lot of, of uh, cell phone companies waiving roaming charges yeah. at this time so that people can work from home, can stay in touch. So I think if we focus on all the amazing things that people are doing in, in this situation, you know, free online courses. I think the Met Opera in New York has just allowed people to live stream their opera, if that's your thing. You know, just look around. There's a lot of a lot of really amazing things happening out there. Well, it's not as if we could be bored. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's we can a, entertain ourselves to death. <laughs> plethora of things that are going on. From, from a public health standpoint, though, Allison, talk to us about what we individually should be doing. I mean, uh, some people want to avoid this, and they're looking for, uh, well, there's not going to be a vaccine. I think we're hopefully all aware that that's not going to happen anytime soon, at least for a year, if that. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but is there something else we should be doing from a dietary standpoint or, 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 or you know, any other things that we should be taking to, to, to kind of, uh, I guess, you know, build that wall up against this? Well, um, there's certainly an argument to be made for staying healthy at this point in time. So, you know, get lots of sleep, uh, eat healthily if you can. Um, it costs a lot of money to eat well, so obviously that's a challenge for some people, but to the extent that you can, um, diet can contribute to your immune status greatly. If you're a smoker, um, the stressful time will, will make you want to smoke more, but try and cut back because we know that smoking is a huge risk factor for this uh, turning nasty if you do contract COVID-19. So, um, you know, just everyday practices that keep you healthy. Um, it can be a challenge to, to get some exercise, but, you know, we can still go outside. Just stay away from people. Stay a meter away. You can wave from across the street if you see a neighbor. Um, but you can still go out and have a nice walk, and that's probably something pretty important for people's psychological health at this point in time. It's, as I hear some of the stories, though, as we all do, I guess, over the last few days about uh, the people that may have contracted this and actually been uh, positive uh, with the, the results that they've done on this, uh, it's amazing the number of people that are walking around that all are part of this what we call vulnerable population. We t- we tend to, I guess, to think of of elderly people, and, and they certainly are, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 those that may be infirm dealing with cancer and things of this nature. But it's an awful lot of other people out there too that uh, could be diabetic, uh, any any number of other physical conditions that that we can't see uh, initially on the surface, but uh, but they're certainly high risk people as a result. Uh, so which I think really underscores the whole idea for for the the social distancing that you've talked about. Yeah, absolutely. You have no idea who is taking medication that suppresses their immune system. You don't, I mean, we just don't know. So it's not just the elderly that are at risk. There, there's a lot of people that have, you know, diabetics in particular are at, at a high risk for this because their immune systems are compromised to begin with. So um, take care of each other and, you know, don't take unnecessary risks. Sure, it may be your right right now to go out and do what you want to do, but don't because you're going to end up hurting someone or yourself. 
when we again look at time frames and, and when we look to, to the professionals and the experts such as yourself to, to give us some sort of an indication, do you get the sense, uh, Professor, that we're over this now? That this, that, oh, this is going to clear up in the next couple of weeks. When the warm weather rolls in here in, in May and June, that this is going to go away. I, I think we've all pretty much come to grips with the fact that it's not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, I think it's a, probably a pretty safe bet to say that we're going to be in this situation for several months. And we can actually hope that we are because that means that we have flattened the curve somewhat, which means that the epidemic might last longer, but we will have fewer fatalities because we're not overwhelming the healthcare system and we'll have enough resources to deal with the sickest among us. So we can actually hope that this goes on for a long time. What we'll have to be careful about is not um, getting complacent about hand hygiene and respiratory hygiene and social distancing practices because that could easily tip us back over into the situation where we're overwhelming the system. Well, this is a rather stunning wake-up call, I mean, because a lot of the stuff you've just talked about has been available to us. Uh, the grocery store that we use, uh, for, you know, for years, for eight or ten years, has always had a hand sanitizer right by the buggies. They don't now, probably because they run out of hand sanitizer. Uh, but I know an awful lot of people that said, ah, I'm fine, you know, I don't need to do that. Uh, those those yeah. are just germaphobes. Well, I think we know better right now that the, that, that kind of conscientious behavior and preventative action like this is, is going to put you in good stead when something like this comes along. Yeah, and you know, that's the thing. This is not out of our control uh, as an individual. Uh, we can have a serious impact on all of this. If we all do these things correctly and we take care of ourselves and each other, we'll be okay. And and that's unusual. Like, there are a lot of things in life that are totally out of our control. But this is actually, every single person has a role to play in responding to this situation. So that should be empowering for people. Is this... When we look at this, is is this the future? And I'm not suggesting it's, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have one wave after another of COVID-19, but but uh, of the coronavirus types, and, and, you know, you mentioned SARS a few minutes ago, and these are all sort of variations on the same theme. Uh, can we just expect that, that we're going to have to prepare and be ready for these sorts of things in the future? I think so. I mean, we, we do have this every year with influenza. Yeah. Um, and what's, what's tough is when it's a brand new virus like this one. And so the more viruses that jump from animals to humans, we're just going to continue to see this. And I mean, this is a big wake up call for everybody uh, in terms of getting the world's capacity to manufacture vaccines up to speed because we have a serious capacity problem in that regard. Um, so once we do have a vaccine, there will be a big fight over who gets access to it first. Well, um, the number that so always jumps be... out at me that that I think we, puts us in perspective for it is, is the medical officers that are in charge of this tell us that it's likely that 50 to 60 percent of the population are going to be affected by this. That doesn't mean they're all going to get the, the full force of the virus. Uh, but... <laughs> You do the math and you say there's a 2% mortality rate with this virus as well. Do the math. That's an awful lot of people that are in harm's way right now. So the, the more we can do to try to mitigate that and to try to, as you say, flatten that curve, uh, the, the lower that number is going to be. Exactly. And so we can, we can all contribute to whether this turns out badly or whether this has a better outcome than we're currently anticipating. And it's completely dependent on each person making sure that they're doing what they can. And it feels like an if, if it feels like an overreaction, I would say, wouldn't you prefer that to an underreaction? And so I think, you know, public health always has this problem, but when it does its job properly, everybody everybody says, well, what was all the fuss about? Because nothing happened. And that's sort of what we want here. We want people to 
wonder why public health went nuts rather than be like, oh, they were right, you know. So, so let's uh, let's get to the point where we can look back on this and say, you know, oh, it looked like an overreaction, but it wasn't. Professor, as always, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. That's Take Professor care. Allison Thompson, of course, from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of news coming out of Ottawa these days because of the concerns about the shutdowns and the impact it's having economically. And the federal government is now setting, getting set rather to present a major economic package that was uh, supposed to help stimulate the economy and uh, and I'll lend some assistance, I guess, to the people who are going to be negatively impacted. Mike Armstrong, Quebec correspondent for Global News, uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML to give us an insight as to what's going on. Mike, on a very busy day, appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Uh, what have you heard? What's uh, What are the words? I mean, we've, we've known the Prime Minister and, and the Finance Minister, Mr. Morneau, have talked about uh, wanting to do something about this. I guess they've crunched some numbers right now. What can we expect this morning? Yeah, we're hearing that it's going to be a $27 billion package. Uh, sort of, I guess it'll have two phases. The first phase is to help people who've perhaps lost work in this crisis. Uh, maybe their offices have closed, even gone out of business, unfortunately. Uh, also to help uh, people who are self-employed and uh, part-time workers who aren't working right now and therefore wouldn't normally qualify for EI. They want to get uh, money into people's hands uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, the other part of the stimulus package or of this um, package, $27 billion, appears to be sort of further down the road. Uh, Some of the money will be to stimulate the economy as we come out of the crisis. Um, Now the question is, when will that be? Yeah, absolutely. The individual help is interesting because uh, the the word we heard the other day out of Ottawa with uh, your reporting and and, and from David Aiken is that they were going to try to use existing social safety net programs to try to flow this money through to the public. Uh, but you mentioned that one group that I know is particularly concerned about this is the self-employed, who oftentimes don't qualify for a lot of those programs simply by nature of, of their job uh, and the benefits. But it sounds as if they've, they've cast the net far enough to include them. Yeah. Uh, they don't seem to be able to do everything they wanted to do with the rules the way they are now. The Prime Minister yesterday talked about having to recall Parliament, actually, to pass legislation to help Canadians uh, who find themselves out of work. So to get some of these things they want done, uh, or they want to do, they actually have to change some of the rules. So they're going to recall Parliament, possibly. Um, and in this time of self-isolation, obviously they're trying to avoid bringing everybody back. Uh, so they don't need all 338 MPs. They need 20 MPs, actually, for quorum. So that might be the way they get they move forward on this. Would it be going through a committee then? I, I know we're kind of getting deep into the weeds with procedural stuff here, uh, but but which, which 20 people? And, and would it be an all-party situation here? I don't think we've seen this before, so I'm yeah. not sure how to answer that question. <laughs> it's a great, great, uh, I'll look into that because it's a great question. We're breaking new ground here just about every day, aren't we? <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Like the border crossing, uh, the border closing today, we're hearing that that announcement is coming, uh, that the deal's made. That hasn't happened since 9-11, and, and back then I think it only lasted a day or so or perhaps a couple of days, I don't really recall. It just doesn't happen. Well, and when it did happen, and I can remember our coverage on that, uh, it, it caused some friction between the two countries because of the, the, the stuff that was going on. Now, we're told that they're going to try to keep commerce going back and forth here, and it's really just individual traffic, anybody like cross-border shopping or somebody to go visit family relatives, et cetera, like this. Uh, but, uh, but the implementation and the enforcement of this is always a tricky thing. <laughs> the the enforcement absolutely application absolutely the other thing that's been extremely delicate i think has been sort of 
making sure that this is a mutual decision, that uh, the relationship with Washington, and in particular the White House, is protected. So when this is announced today, that the border is closing to all but essential travelers uh, to keep those supply routes open, uh, it will be made very clear that both the White House and Ottawa have made this decision together. Mike, was there any concern or surprise even in Ottawa when they announced that that was going to be part of this package, the border closing? Uh, because obviously when the Prime Minister made his initial announcement a couple of days ago now, uh, he talked about the, uh, the, the, the exceptions that were going to be made, and the Americans were one of those. So we kind of thought, well, I guess that's, that's that. That's not going to change. But 24 hours later, uh, here we go with a, a border closing that's going to happen here. I guess it just indicates just how fluid the situation is. How fluid and, as I said, how delicate. I mean, it really has been, like, even if Canada wanted to close the border, Canada didn't want to close the border and upset the U.S. It had to be done uh, together. Um, as a matter of fact, the Deputy Prime Minister yesterday talked about how important that border is, too. Uh, to keep things moving, uh, they didn't want to act too quickly because there are there's so much goods, so much food that comes across the border, so much medicine that comes across the border, even important labor that comes across the border, and that has to be protected. It's also extremely delicate. Right across the, the, the border, um, from ocean to ocean, there are places where it is extremely complicated to close the border. Uh, Point Roberts out in B.C., where to travel from the U.S., uh, you have to travel through Canada, basically, to get from the U.S. to the U.S., Campobello Island on the uh, on the East Coast, same thing. It's a part of New Brunswick where you have to take a bridge to the U.S., travel through the U.S. to get back into Canada. Even ambulances have to cross the border twice to go from New Brunswick to New Brunswick. And then there are also communities in the middle, Pointe-Gamook, Quebec, where there are places in Maine that straddle the border. Uh, it is extremely delicate to close the border, and, and that could be one of the reasons it's taken so long to happen. They certainly want to keep um, the transmission down, uh, flat that curve they they probably wanted to take this step but it's it was just too hard to do it earlier mike was the changing attitude in washington a factor in this uh, you know like a week and a half 10 days ago uh, some of the stuff we heard from president trump at that time indicated that they didn't think that this whole process uh, that the, the covid 19 was much of a big deal at all you know he kept talking about uh, we've got it under control we're going to get a vaccine real soon it's going to go away by the summertime uh, it was a much different tone some of the last couple of days that Trump has made these announcements. So that, that maybe there's a realization now that, hey, this is, this is the big, this is big. Or the, uh, and there's a realization, of, I guess, of the impact that this is going to have on here. That would, would that have made it easier for them to have those discussions about border closings? Uh, absolutely. I mean, how could you have closed the border to Americans at a time when uh, a lot of the wording coming out of the U.S. was that it was a hoax uh, or that it was overblown? Um, and you can see what's going on between China and the U.S. when sort of relationships start to deteriorate. Uh, you've seen um, who started it exactly is, is hard to tell, but the U.S. referring to this as sort of a uh, Wuhan virus, uh, China saying, well, it might have started in a, uh, an American lab or something like that. Um, but yesterday, even the, um, the, excuse me, China yesterday uh, started kicking out American journalists like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Say, and so there these repercussions from the, the, the strain on those relationships has started. And that's exactly what Canada was obviously trying to avoid. Yeah, well, some of the tweets from the president, of course, about calling it the Chinese virus, I, I, I guess they're throwing gasoline under that kind of fire. And it probably would put Canada in good stead to just kind of back away and, and, and let that go on between those two countries and don't get involved. 
<laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. We, we've seen what can happen the other way around when we do these sorts of things, too. Uh, Mike, I, I know it's a, a hectic time up there. We'll uh, let you go in a couple of seconds here uh, to see what's exactly going to be happening. And, of course, uh, we'll be watching for your reporting on Global National later on today. Uh, thanks so much for this today. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you very much. Mike Armstrong, of course, Quebec correspondent for Global News. Uh, everybody, of course, focused on Ottawa, though, these days, to find out what the Prime Minister is going to be doing. Uh, an interesting uh, conundrum, though, that uh, that Mike was just explaining, and the, the, the Prime Minister did hint at that uh, the other day, that he may have to call Parliament back into session. Now, you may remember, uh, it was about a week or so ago, that Parliament decided to, to dissemble themselves for the next little while, obviously for health reasons. Uh, because of the uh, the whole idea about social separation and, and kind of get away from each other for a little while. Uh, they did pass the uh, the NAFTA and the NAFTA 2 Act before they did that, so that's on the table. And then we thought, okay, our job here is done, and they've gone back to their constituencies. Uh, but if, in fact, they're going to have to be procedural changes uh, to enact some of the things that the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister apparently are going to talk about later on this morning, uh, there may well have to be a, a session of Parliament, or at least a couple of meetings, to pass new legislation. I know it's, like I say, it's one of the procedural things that can kind of have boring, but it's going to be interesting to see just how that plays out. Because even when the Prime Minister was, was talking about some of the initial steps uh, that the government was going to take, uh, the first time it was only $1 billion. Obviously, that's going to be a significantly larger number that's going to be talked about today. But uh, there were some cries from the opposition party, the Conservatives especially, uh, very critical of the government's action, or inaction, as they said, uh, through this whole process. And uh, there were quite a few people that accused the Conservatives of simply playing politics, that this is a time for nonpartisan action, where everybody's supposed to come together and not try to take shots at each other uh, to try to score some political points. Uh, it's, I, I don't know how this is going to play out if, in fact, there is going to have to be another session or at least even a couple of days of Parliament uh, to try to move some of these processes forward. Uh, and for that matter, what kind of reaction we're going to get from the opposition parties about the package that's being proposed in the first place? It is a significant amount of money. Uh, and it does seem, as uh, Mike Armstrong just told us, it does seem to touch an awful lot of the bases here for people that are looking for immediate compensation. And, you know, the old adage about, you know, when things get difficult, you have to make difficult decisions. Uh, and governments are now considering doing things that, uh, you know, two months ago, six weeks ago, they never would have thought of doing, simply because they said it would have been financially irresponsible. And now the government is making big, big amounts of money available for you, me, individuals, people that are going to lose their jobs or at least lose income for a period of time. Some may lose their jobs. Uh, the, uh, you know, the recommendations and some of the pr prospects we've seen from some of the, the uh, agencies that are looking out for this uh, right now and how this is going to impact business uh, are not very optimistic. They say that a lot of small businesses may just have to cave because of what's going on here because they just don't know how long they can hang on. And we talked to a couple of restaurateurs here in the Hamilton area in the program yesterday who, who echoed that sentiment. So it's going to be hard times. And those people that are going to be negatively impacted by this, by the closures or by the virus itself, all for the right reasons, you know, for public safety, are going to be looking toward the government for some sort of compensation. And it's going to happen. I mean, even south of the border, you may remember that uh, Andrew Yang, one of the Democratic uh, candidates for the, the presidential nomination, he's dropped out, of course, in the last couple of weeks, but one of his proposals was a guaranteed income uh, to give everybody X amount of dollars a year. Every American, every American was going to get a big check. You know, and now Mitt Romney, who's the Republican, of course, for Utah, is recommending that very same thing: a check every month to every American to try to tide, the, to you know, stem the tide and, and and give them some financial stability. And the government, apparently, uh, what the vice president and the president said yesterday is uh, they're they're giving that serious consideration.
Never would have happened just a few weeks ago. But I think we're understanding, and I think finally our, our elected leaders are understanding the gravity of this situation and the fact that they're going to have to take some drastic measures. And we saw this happen before. I mean, in 2008, 2009, when that major recession hit, uh, Stephen Harper, of course, was the prime minister. And on principle, Mr. Harper had always said no corporate welfare. He was always against that sort of thing. Yet there he was with, uh, at that time, Premier Dalton McGuinney of Ontario making the announcement about huge amounts of money, what many people call a bailout for the auto industry. And as much as that may not have been what Mr. Harper wanted to do, uh, I guess he came to the realization. I know Jim Flaherty, were told, it was a major influence in trying to win him over to that side. It's what they had to do, and it worked. I mean, it did save auto jobs here in this side of the border. Uh, they've had their own problems since then, of course, but we'll see what happens. Anyway, Prime Minister apparently will address us and give us some more details about this, and uh, we're going to carry that, of course, this very important announcement right here on CHML. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the other uh, impacts that we've seen, and it's a very important one too, of course, is uh, is cross-border traffic and Canadians coming back home and, and whether or not borders are going to be closed. And the Prime Minister, I think, was rather candid in his comments uh, yesterday when he suggested that, look, it, we want our, you know, our Canadians to come home now. It's time uh, because we're tired of, of, of the concern that's being raised here and the impact that this is going to have. And the longer the people are in other parts of the world, uh, the greater the risk of them being exposed to the virus. So that is starting to happen. Uh, and it's not happening without a, a few bumps along the road. Uh, folks are pouring into the to the uh, airports, and as we know, there's already been some restrictions put on airport traffic now. Most international flights uh, are only going to be out in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, and Calgary, and uh, that's obviously going to cause some log jams in those particular airports. Uh, one of the people that was impacted by this is, is our daughter, uh, Amanda, who uh, came back last night and uh, sold some interesting stories late last night. And I wanted to bring her on the program today because we've heard a lot of stories, a lot of misinformation uh, and a lot of concern raised about how the influx of Canadians coming back in are being handled by these airports. So now we're talking about security measures, we're talking about public health, and a number of other things. So I wanted to get Amanda onto the program today to give us her perspective and her experience as to what she saw as uh, she came home. Uh, so uh, here is our daughter, by interest of full disclosure, my daughter Amanda Kelly, who joins us on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Thank you so much for the time. Welcome home, first of all. Thanks, Dad. It's so so wonderful to be back on Canadian soil. We uh, we haven't talked we haven't seen each other for the longest time. I know we texted back and forth when you guys were down in the Caribbean. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I got to ask you before we get into what happened last night and and first of all even before that I guess you know the flight trying to get on the plane to actually get here had its problems too. This mm-hmm. this really kind of blew up while you guys were down there. I mean you you were aware that there was a concern, but there weren't travel advisories and none of that stuff had really happened, and we didn't know just how extensive uh, the the coronavirus was at this time. But it happened while you were down there. What, what was the talk down there, Amanda? Were people talking about this? Were they aware of how how significant this was becoming? Yeah. So we left last Monday, and at that point, it was really um, here in Ontario considered more of an international challenge than a local one. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took a while, actually, while we were in the while we were in the Caribbean for people to kind of come to grips with it. It wasn't until I want to say. Thursday or Friday that the resort we were at actually put up any notifications and my best friend who I was away with is an epidemiologist so she and I were were talking about this throughout the week of course and noticing that people at the resort were not discussing it it was almost like a um 
out of sight, out of mind situation. It wasn't until the end of the week, around Friday, Saturday, when all of the American spring break youth started flooding in, that suddenly the the adult cohort were very aware of of the risks that were um, they were just inevitably participating in by being present. Well, and that's part of the, uh, the the mystique, I guess, of going on holidays. I mean, when you're in a resort like that, one of the reasons you go there, I guess, is to get away from everything. And I know a lot of people that don't look at local newspapers. They don't even go online. They don't check their emails. They just like, you know, I'm down here to relax. So so maybe out of sight, out of mind. But, boy, it sure blew up with, while you were down there. I mean, I, I can even remember, you know, the day before you left. It was like, well, this thing's, well, just be careful, okay, and have a great time. There was no great concern about people that were traveling. But that's certainly changed now, hasn't it? Yeah, very much so. And I I have to say that although um, the resort that we were at, the first one, <laughs> um, didn't put signage up until the end of the week when Jamaica, the country we were in, um, declared it as a, as a state of emergency, they were very cautious in that in every single entryway of every single restaurant, everywhere you went, they actually put a staff member to hand sanitize every person that went through that doorway. And you actually weren't allowed through unless you hand sanitized. And we all know that soap and water is significantly more effective Mm -hmm. for hand washing, um, but it was a precaution that at least they, they were taking. Yeah, but in a situation like that, though, Amanda, I mean, social distancing, which we're told is such a key element to, to, to try to fight this. It's virtually impossible at a resort like that, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, there's something about laying on the beach and having the fresh air blow in (laughs) and the ocean waves, um, regardless of what state humans are going through, blowing in that fresh breeze and just continuing to exist that kind of calms you. But there's something underlying that just feels wrong, knowing that your family and your loved ones and even you in this distant country and are you going to be able to get home? There's a bit of anxiety underlying that getaway. <laughs> when it came toward the end of the week there, and, and the realization started to dawn on people that, hey, this is pretty serious stuff, was there any talk among uh, the group of the folks that, that you were hanging around with at the resort there that maybe we should leave early? Yeah, there was. So quite a few groups of, of people that we spoke with were investigating options, ourselves included. The challenge was that the flights themselves were filling up so quickly. There weren't seats available. And on top of that, at that time, you're basically having to purchase a whole new ticket. So for us to come home 48 hours early would have cost $2,400, yeah, American dollars. Uh, yeah, and that's that obviously, you know, we heard that from the Prime Minister that we want everybody to get back home here. And that's that's a great idea and a great concept. But uh, the airlines weren't really playing ball here. Uh, I'm not suggesting they were price gouging or anything, but they didn't really cut any slack for anybody, did they? At least it didn't seem to be that way. No, my understanding is that's changed now, though, yeah. and there are significant discounts available. So so you figured, I guess, because of that, you decided, okay, you're supposed to fly home on Monday anyway, so you stuck with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to the airport, and it wasn't smooth sailing. What happened? Yeah, all appeared to be smooth uh, until the point that we were actually lined up at the gate, ready to board. Everyone had their passport and their ticket out. You can see the plane through the window, and... Suddenly, there was an announcement that our flight had been canceled. And you can only imagine the the gasps of horror and the feeling of panic that, oh my gosh, I might be stuck on the other side of the world away from my home country. 
there's, there's never an explanation when they make that announcement. Hopefully, you get some detail later on. But, but the, the the feeling through that whole crowd must have been like, are we are we going to get home at all? I mean, they didn't say, hey, it's going to be an hour. They didn't say. They just said, you're not flying today. They said it was canceled. Yeah. Uh, and they said it was canceled due to operational reasons. What we found out later on when one of the staff members was speaking to a smaller group of folks was that one of the flight attendants had actually had a panic attack. And I want to give so much recognition to these folks who are really heroes in getting our Canadian citizens home. And knowing that in the next couple of weeks, some of their unions have announced 50% of them will be laid off. Yeah. So I can only imagine the stress they're going through. But uh, yeah, so one of them actually had some sort of breakdown and our flight was canceled for 24 hours. We were with 150 other Canadians stranded in the airport. Um, the flight line, the airline did put us up in a nearby hotel. Well, that, that's not as bad. Yeah, some people spend the night in the airport when that happens, so at least you had accommodation. Yeah. That's right, but unfortunately, um, and, and the airport in this case closes overnight, so that wasn't an option. Okay. But uh, unfortunately, we were obviously in this very small group just hovering around the airline staff waiting for updates, which in and of itself is a very <laughs> um, high-risk situation to be in, given that this virus is airborne. And then we were... Sh- shuttled into shuttle buses and put in close confined quarters on buses and taken to another hotel where we were then in a very small group of 150 Canadians lining up to get cards and luggage and the the whole shuffle itself was um, we believe increased our risk of exposure quite significantly. Yeah, for anybody looking for social separation here, it just wasn't happening there. Uh, We've got a few minutes left here. I want to try to squeeze a whole bunch of information in here. Uh, Just to fast forward a little bit, your flight the next day was even delayed by an hour or so, wasn't it? Yeah, an hour and a half. You you must have figured you're never going to get out of there. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting because they did tell us that while we couldn't see the plane at the time, the reason it was late was because they were doing thorough cleaning, significantly more thorough than usual. So we were grateful for that. Oh, yeah. Certainly. Okay, so you finally took off. You landed late last night at Pearson. Now, Mm -hmm. you've heard the stories, and we certainly have, about lack security, and they're not really checking people, and they're not really screening people, and they're not really asking about symptoms, etc. What was your experience, Amanda, as you went through the airport last night after you landed? It was all hands on deck. Uh, Our process getting through was significantly more streamlined than we anticipated. There were no major delays whatsoever, but it was because they had the process down to a T. So you come off of the airplane and every person is filtered through uh, maybe five representatives from the military who are giving out information on the virus itself and asking about symptoms. They do let you know that the country, the nation, is asking you to self-isolate. And then once you pass through that initial filter, you go through a digital screening and then to the human customs border officers. And at every step along that way, they are asking about symptoms. They are asking about um, whether you acknowledge that you're being asked to self-isolate and whether you intend to do so. 
which which is different from the stories we'd heard earlier in the week. So, and I'll take the stories from earlier in the week at face value. Maybe maybe they just didn't have their act together. But it sounds as if uh, they've listened to that and they've understood that there's got to be more strict protocol. And you certainly saw that last night. I'm sure it's been a learning curve, but from what we experienced last night um, when our masked flight descended into the airport. It was quite smooth, and honestly, we were impressed by the measures that they had in place. Well, and like I say, since most of the international flights, all of them, I guess, are going to be channeled through only four airports uh, here in Canada, those lineups are probably going to get a little bit longer as time goes on. But hopefully we can get everybody back here, as the Prime Minister has suggested. And you are now going through your your first of 14 days now, aren't you? That's right, yep. (sighs) Stay in the house. Yeah, so you go away for an extended period of time, and obviously you get rid of groceries and things that will expire before you leave, and then you come home, and you're isolated for 14 days. So, Well, it's uh, it's in the best interest, and I know it's going to be difficult for an awful lot of us, but uh, maybe, I, well, just curl up with the dogs and make a cup of tea, and maybe the time will pass a lot faster if you do that. Yeah, absolutely. I, a lot of people's workplaces are being very supportive with working from home, yeah. and uh, a lot of friends and family members of people that I know are doing things like dropping groceries on their front doorstep and that sort of thing. Well, here's hoping that, uh, that it all goes for the best for you, that, uh, that after 14 days you're back to work and with no symptoms. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's si- err on the side of caution, I guess, is what the government's asking everybody to do at this stage, and, and you're going through the process as well. Uh, again, honey, welcome back. It's, it's great to have you back here, back and healthy. Uh, and I know we'll stay in touch, and uh, we'll, obviously we'll see how this progresses over the next uh, few days. But thanks so much for the time today and for getting up early, because I know you got to bed real late last night by the time you finally got through customs and everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, happy to support Dad and offer any insights. Love you. Love you. Bye. My daughter, Amanda Kelly, who's uh, home safe uh, through Pearson Airport after a, a rather rigorous vacation. I know a lot of other Canadians going through a very similar process, but it sounds uh, from her descriptor of what they went through last night, that uh, the, the customs officials, border officials, uh, and uh, medical people have got their act together at Pearson right now and are doing the screening that they had z- suggested that they were going to do. And that's that's a good news story. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.